Well, good morning again, and a happy new year to each of you. And uh, it's great that you could uh, make it to church this morning, uh, being a Sunday and New Year's Day, uh, which is part of the joy of having nine o'clock fireworks. Uh, you can still go to bed early and, and make it to church the next day. Uh, of course, with New Year comes New Year's resolutions. Uh, we passed a few New Year's resolutions on our way to church here this morning. Uh, you could uh, usually tell what they look like because they're slightly overweight or not so slightly overweight middle-aged men uh, on bikes and in lycra. I should suck in my tummy as I say that, shouldn't I? Uh, I'll confess up front, I'm not a big New Year's resolution fan. Uh, I'm fairly pessimistic as a person. Uh, actually, someone sitting behind my wife tends to call me Eeyore. Um, but uh, we'll come back to that kind of thing a little bit later. Uh, I'm not a big New Year's resolution uh, person. Uh, and I've already broken the New Year's resolution that I've made, uh, which is to stick to my script. Uh, so uh, uh, I'll do my best this morning. But there is actually something really admirable about New Year's resolutions. Whatever your attitude towards them, whether you're jaded and cynical, whether you're really positive and optimistic, whether they work for you, whether they don't, there's actually something really admirable about it, even to sceptical people like myself. Because with a New Year's resolution comes this recognition that we could be better than who we are now that who we are now is not the sum total of who we could be, that there is an optimism about starting anew, turning over a new leaf, beginning again, renewal, of letting go of the old and putting on something new. In many ways, although our society would never call it this, from a Christian perspective, a New Year's resolution is like repentance in miniature, isn't it? of leaving something behind and saying, no more, but I would like to be better than I am now and to grow towards something different. And as Christians, we know that repentance is actually good news, not bad news. In a world that often feels increasingly militant in hunting out and condemning uh, the unforgivable sins in our society, There's a new orthodoxy growing and there are some things that are simply unforgivable. Although there is actually only one unforgivable sin and if you have your Bibles open, it's earlier in Luke chapter 12 uh, that we see it. It's good news, isn't it? In a world that has these militant orthodoxies to still have embedded in our structures in society this repentance in miniature that there is the possibility of change, that there is the possibility of letting go of the old self and embracing the new, of beginning again. And even the last few years, with all of its New Year traumas, bushfires, I mean, who even remembers them? COVID, COVID lockdowns, even that can't dent the spark that we have that there could be something better. And perhaps you've made some resolutions already this year. Bible reading, commitment afresh to prayer, reading some Christian books or listening to some podcasts, letting go of that habitual sin that's been plaguing you for so long. Perhaps your resolve has been to come back to church 
after being so long away from church. And if that's you, welcome back. And please come and say hello at the end of the service. This morning, I want to speak to you about resolution, about resolve, actions grounded in a firm decision of the mind. Because in many ways, this passage calls us to a resolve, to a resolution. Have a look with me at verse 15 there. Jesus said to them, take care, literally have your eyes open, watch, look out. And be on your guard, an act of the will, an act of discipline in the mind to pay attention and to look out. We've all heard the phrase of things becoming background furniture to us. Things just fade into the background, become part of the furniture. That new painting that we've acquired, the photo that we love that we've put up in a frame on the wall... It's enjoyable for a few days, isn't it? But then all of a sudden we don't see it anymore because it's faded into the background. So much in our life, our habits, the things that occur to us, they happen on autopilot. They're just background noise, if you like. We don't actively think about them. But Jesus calls us here this morning, this day, Not because it's New Year's Day, it's because it's any day that we're listening to his voice. To draw things into the foreground. To pay attention. To be on guard. And to be on guard about a very specific thing. About covetousness. Greed. The desire for more, to gather for oneself. This day, I want to invite you to resolve to flee the covetous life and to pursue richness to God. Not because I'm anything, but because God calls us to in this passage. It doesn't require a New Year's resolution, of course. But today is as good a day as any, isn't it? To commit ourselves again to letting go of materialism, the things of this world, and pursuing richness to our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, taking every thought captive and submitting them to Christ. Which is exactly uh, uh, the kind of attitude that the author of the Hebrews encourages us with in chapter 3 when he quotes Psalm 95 that Anglican psalm that was said every day in church. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. But rather, the author says, as long as it's called today, every day, ensure that we are not hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So yes, there's a call to be resolved this morning, but in some ways it's a call to be resolved, to be resolved every day. Every day, make this resolution, not just on one day. Because when it comes to things like covetousness, to the love of riches, the desires for other things, we can so easily be deceived, become entangled. We can't make the decision once and then just live our life 
onwards. But it's something that we continually fight for, that we don't become choked and entangled by these things. It's like body strength exercises. I'm sure many of us have engaged or tried to engage in body strength exercises. Whether you need to work on your pelvic muscles or your posture, you'll know what I'm talking about. Someone says, stand up straight. I can see a few of you shuffling in the pews. And we can stand up straight, straighten our backs for a few seconds. And then the person we're with says, come on, stand up straight. And we think we are standing up straight still, but then all of a sudden we realize, oh, actually, even while I was thinking about standing up straight, I've started slouching again. It takes an extraordinary paying of attention, a resolve, a discipline of the mind to keep reminding ourselves that we might form new habits. Resolve this day to resolve every day to not be covetous, but to pursue richness towards God. Now these words that Jesus speaks, they don't come in a vacuum, do they? They come in response to a call from someone in the crowd who has interrupted Jesus uh, mid-flight. You've all experienced it, I'm sure, and if we're honest with ourselves, we've all perpetrated it from time to time. Some of us have a particular talent for it, uh, and some of us enjoy the fact that people have a particular talent for it. It's the ability to interrupt a conversation with the bizarre and the trivial, even though something might be really seriously being talked about. A loved one has died. A friend has cancer. A child is unemployed. The conversation goes on, and yet out of nowhere, all of a sudden, someone starts talking about cricket or rugby. I know that is significant to some of you, but trust me, it's really not that significant. Um, uh, The traffic on the road, Harry and Meghan, from the ponderous to the puff with all the subtlety of a gear change with no clutch. You know what those conversations are like, and we've all been the person to do that in conversation from time to time. But if you have your Bibles open in front of you, and I hope you do, have a look at what Jesus has been talking about. At the end of chapter 11, we find out that the Pharisees are trying uh, to catch him out in what he is saying. They're trying to persecute him. They press him hard. They provoke him to speak about things. They're trying to trap him in his words. And Jesus is not shying away from the significant and the important. Verse 1, he doesn't back down. He says, be on your guard against the Pharisees. Beware them. Verse 4, don't be afraid of those who can kill you. And that's it. Verse 5, be afraid of the one who, after he has taken your life, judges you. Verse 8, who is the one whom Jesus will acknowledge and own before the Father on that day? Verse 9, who is the one that Jesus will disown? Verse 10, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, verse 12, how is it that we can possibly still own and acknowledge Jesus under the threat of real persecution? These are not insignificant matters. Verse 13. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. From the ponderous things of life to relatively trivial 
The man wants his inheritance. A few years ago, I was uh, the minister at Watson's Bay and I learned a new phrase in my life, perhaps you've heard it, uh, or a variation of it, that where there's a will, there's a family. And it's so true, isn't it? And sometimes the fights over the will and how the will will play out in the future doesn't wait for the passing of the loved one. So many times in ministry over there, I saw time and again families acting on behalf of the parent, usually the widow, not for their good, but in such a way that it would maximise the inheritance that they would get in a few years' time. Covetousness. Greed. We're not given the details of this man, what his situation was, and in a very real way, it doesn't matter because the seeds of greed can grow in any heart, rich or poor, high class or low class. Was it unjust what the brother had done or was it just? We don't know. Had this been dragging on for months, for years, or was it an immediate thing? We don't know and it doesn't matter because covetousness can creep up and find its seed and germinate and flower in any person's life. And Jesus doesn't answer directly, does he? He doesn't arbitrate in the situation, but rather he warns against this very issue of covetousness. Why? Because our lives don't consist of the abundance of what we have. We can talk about our late 21st century materialistic society, but it's no different from any other society in history, is it? The issues that we face today, the temptations, the deceitfulness of wealth, the, the deceitfulness of materialism and the temptation to invest our lives in pursuing riches for ourselves and gathering more and more. Well, Jesus is speaking about it 2,000 years ago. You'll notice there that he talks about all covetousness, not just some. And it's been intriguing, uh, or not intriguing, it's been disappointing and kind of despairing in some ways uh, this week to realise the ways in which I struggle with covetousness. Mickey mentioned before that uh, I'm still doing my PhD, still. After so many years. On my feed and Instagram this week, I uh, follow some history channels because I love history. Uh, and uh, one of them was praising the delights and wonders of Christchurch, Oxford, and uh, showing around the, the grounds there. I was accepted to Christchurch, Oxford. Why on earth did I accept Wolfson College at Cambridge, this thing, brickwork built in the 70s? Uh, the temptation for status and the prestige just welled up in my heart but then the covetousness for what might have been. Maybe if I'd gone to Oxford and not Cambridge, I wouldn't have been ill. Maybe if I'd gone to Oxford and not Cambridge, other opportunities would have happened. And, and, and. The desire for things can catch us at any moment. He warns us against all covetousness. Not just wealth, but the lusts of our hearts, the desires of our eyes, 
But then he whisks us into this parable. He whisks us into this parable explaining why our life does not consist of the abundance of our possessions. Why it is that it is complete folly. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. The man's already rich. But now all of a sudden he has more. So much more in fact that he doesn't know what to do with it all. But one thing he is clear on is himself. Flick your eyes through those verses and what you see there. My crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, my soul. Jesus summarizes it in verse 21. He is laying up treasure for himself. His ethics, his decision-making, how he chooses to think about the things that he has been given, the goods that he has. It's about the self. A life of abundance, a life of gathering, a life of abundance leading to a life of hedonism, of pleasure. You've got many years ahead of you now. Relax. Eat, drink, be merry. And let's face it, For many people in our society, it's actually quite a tempting picture, isn't it? That is the picture to aim at. There are whole books and industries written about early retirement. How to gather so much for yourself so early that you can live the life of pleasure thereon in. But this picture forgets one crucial detail our mortality verse 20 fool this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared whose will they be the founder of Forbes magazine is credited with saying, he who dies with the most toys wins. Perhaps you've heard that phrase. It didn't take too long, however, for people to respond. He who dies with the most toys still dies. Everything that we have, we cannot take with us. From the highest amongst us to the least, we all end in the same place. A few years ago, uh, I took the funeral of a relative. She was poor by Australian standards, a couple of hundred dollars in a bank account at her passing. All of her earthly belongings fit within two garbage bags. And it was garbage bags that were used to collect her stuff. Compared to the richness and the wealthiness of the so-called great ones through history, the treasures discovered in the tomb of Tutankhamun, the inconceivable wealth discovered with the first emperor of China and his terracotta figurines. But they're all in the same place. 
I know quite a few of us here have a connection with the eastern suburbs and with Watson's Bay. And perhaps you've been over to the columbarium at the church there. For those of you who don't know what a columbarium is, it's a wall uh, built to inter ashes. It's a beautiful location, but it's also a humbling one when you realise what human life is reduced to at death. Ashes the size of a brick. He who dies with the most toys still dies. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So why on earth then would we pursue a life of gain, 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 when all of it will be given? Brothers and sisters, this day resolve, resolve every day to let go of covetousness and pursue richness toward God instead. Verse 21. But what does that actually look like? What does it mean to be rich toward our God? God doesn't have a bank account that we can put our money into. He doesn't have a storehouse for us to put goods into. And it's not like God needs anything from us anyway. It's not like he's desperate for us to give things to him so that he can get on with things. He is utterly independent of us. We need him, not he needs us. Jesus doesn't tell us what it means exactly, but one of the great delights about Luke's gospel is that parables are often interpreted by the context in Luke. And context is key. In a few chapters' time, Jesus will tell us explicitly that we can't serve two masters. We'll love one and hate the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. We cannot serve God and money at the same time. It's one or the other. And in verse uh, uh, 22 onwards, we get some hints of what it looks like to be rich towards God. If verses 13 to 21 was a warning against materialism born out of a love of things, out of greed, verses 22 onwards is the flip, a materialism born out of fear and anxiety. And Jesus calls us not to love material things, but also not to be afraid for material things either. He says in verse 23, their life is more than food, the body more than clothing, echoing what we've already heard in our passage. The man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Or verse 29 and 30, don't seek after what you're to eat and drink or be worried. God knows that you need them. Instead, what are we to do, verse 31? Seek his kingdom. Seek the reign and rule of God in this world and in our lives. He gives an example of that in verse 32 and 33. Fear not, it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the poor. God has a character, a nature to him. And as we pursue the reign and rule of God in this world and in our lives... We seek to be rich in that character of generosity, of grace, of caring for the needy. 
Paul summarizes the purpose of work in Ephesians 4.28. The thief must no longer steal, but he must do something useful with his hands so that he may have something to share with those in need. Under God, as we seek his reign and rule in our life, we prioritize the kingdom. Yes, to see the gospel go out in this world and people just like us to come under the sound of that gospel and hear it and repent and believe. Be saved. But as we continue to work out that kingdom, that reign and rule in our lives, to submit everything to God and to seek to be like him, You heard the story of my youth. Uh, For whatever reason, I've never let go of the Old Testament and uh, my PhD is on Deuteronomy. Eleven times in that book, we're told about God's concern and therefore our need to be concerned for the foreigner, the orphan and the widow. The foreigner, the orphan and the widow. The needy amongst them. And often the Levite gets included as well since they had no land and they were responsible for the priestly service and teaching the law. God is concerned for the poor and the needy. The things that we have are not for ourselves to gather more but to share with those in need. Yes, to give to gospel work. But yes, to care for those who are needy. Brothers and sisters, this day, resolve. Resolve to every day be on guard to flee from covetousness and to pursue richness towards God. You may be thinking, well, that's great, but I've tried some New Year's resolutions before and, quite frankly, they don't last very long. In fact, some of you may have heard of uh, a day that has developed. It's about two weeks after uh, New Year's Day. Uh, The dates change depending on who you are. Uh, It's usually the second Friday, apparently, after New Year's Day, and it's called Quitter's Day, the day when by which most people have already given up their New Year's resolutions. Two weeks. Apparently, 89% of people will fail to maintain their New Year's resolutions. Our ability to change is marginal. It exists, but it is marginal. But today, New Year's Day, is actually called another day in our church calendar. I wonder if you know what it is. If you've read Mickey's newsletter, you'd already know. But uh, today is the eighth day after Jesus' birth, which means that today is the day he is circumcised, was circumcised, brought under the law, brought under the covenant. Now, God does not call us to be physically circumcised in the new covenant but rather to circumcise our hearts by his grace. 
What we are unable to do for ourselves, God is already able to do and has done for us. We are called to be rich towards God, to seek his kingdom. But you'll notice that he says, Jesus says, that it is the Father's good pleasure, not just the, not a grudging thing, not a just thing that he does indifferently, but it is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. If God has already given us the kingdom and wants us to have the kingdom, then how much more else will he give us? He gives us his Holy Spirit to dwell within us. Such power for change to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Yes, we will stumble. Yes, we will fail. Yes, we will fall. But with God, there is salvation and forgiveness. Yes, this side of glory, we will never be perfect. But there is real change possible by the power of God's Spirit at work in our lives. It is possible to let go of materialism and pursue richness toward our God. And so, brothers and sisters, this day, resolve every day to flee the covetous life and pursue richness toward our God. Let me lead us in prayer. Father in heaven, we recall the words of John Donne, who asked, what if this present were the world's last night? Give us such a consciousness of our mortality, we pray, that as with the psalmist, we would no longer be envious of the greedy, of the rich, but rather that we would consider their end and ours. As we consider our mortality, we pray that you would reconfigure our desires and give us by your spirit such love and richness toward you that there is no room for materialism in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name.